The Roots Running Sessions is an audio documentary of sorts about the post-collegiate training group, The Roots Running Project. I'm Richie Hansen, coach of The Roots Running Project, and if you like the content we're providing, please subscribe or write a review on SoundCloud or iTunes, and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at roots underscore running. Additionally, consider supporting our pursuits further by grabbing one of our gear items in our next pop-up sale or donating on our website at rootsrunning.org. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy. along with a number of other post-collegiate groups may have missed out on that, that type of athlete had we just looked at those times on paper. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Roots Running Sessions. This podcast details the goings-on of our group, the Roots Running Project, and the purpose of this episode is to discuss a little bit about the backstory of how our group came to be, how Noah Drotti, one of the athletes in our group, came to find us, and how his progression over the last year and a half has kind of catapulted himself onto the professional running scene, but also the uh, image of our group as a whole. So the hope is that it can give you a little bit of insight into how we came to be, but also why Noah's drastic rise isn't as much as a surprise to us as it may seem from the outside. And I apologize in advance, a large portion of this will be my voice as I kind of narrate how our history has progressed. But then I'll do a Q&A with Noah at the end, kind of reflecting back on his perspective of the New York City half And we'll answer some of the questions that some of you threw at us over our social media channels. So for those of you that don't know, my name is Richie Hansen, and I'm the coach of the Roots Running Project. My background is I ran collegiately at UC San Diego. I wasn't the most talented athlete, but uh, saw running as something fun to do while I was going through my undergraduate program. I had some decent marks as a high school athlete, but wasn't the most heavily recruited. I was a pretty underdeveloped athlete running probably around 25, 30 miles a week. I think the longest run I ever did in high school was 60 minutes, which I hit like two or three times and never really knew that much about distance running in general. I didn't know people trained in the off season. We didn't have a very serious high school team and saw running as something that I was decent at, but never really considered pursuing past the high school level until I had the opportunity to go on a recruiting visit to UC San Diego. Really loved the program, really loved the coach, loved the school. I was a beach guy growing up and so the opportunity to go to school close to the coast was really appealing to me, not to mention being close to close to where I grew up. Um, but I didn't really have the most successful college career. I think my biggest claim to fame was making the competitive team all, all four years of eligibility, considering that, like I said, I was, I was pretty underdeveloped coming out of high school. But what it did was 
grew my interest within the sport. And I knew I wanted to work with athletes on a professional scale and was trying to decide what avenue to pursue that would allow me to do that. And I was considering, I, I get really squeamish around blood and needles. And so I was considering med school, but knew that if that was the case where I couldn't really stomach the, the, the applications of what treatment might entail, the physical rehab side was a much more appealing to me. And so I was looking at physical therapy. Um, but when I was comparing it to the chiropractic programs, chiropractic from scope of practice standpoint allows the ability to order imaging and blood work. And so if I had a patient that needed an MRI because there was a suspicion of a stress fracture, um, I wanted the ability to do so and not just have to refer it back to primary care to then convince them that uh, MRI was warranted. So I saw it as uh, the opportunity to be more of that primary care as opposed to um, just a ancillary part of what uh, a musculoskeletal condition might entail. So I pursued chiropractic school, knew that Boulder was a place that I potentially wanted to set up practice. I had come out here during summer um, when I was at UC San Diego, really loved the area, loved the athletic endeavors that it provided and the, the endurance culture that it does have. Um, so decided to set up my private practice here. And in that first year of private practice, you're not very busy because you're kind of starting from scratch and building a patient base. And so I started contacting some of the local high schools about whether they needed any assistance in their athletic departments for their athletic trainers. And one of the local charter schools got back to me and said they needed assistance for their high school hockey team. I started working the home hockey games. Well, that same year, they also needed assistance on their middle school track team. So I became the middle school track coach. The following summer, they asked me if I would be interested in being an assistant on the high school cross-country team. And in that time, the high school cross-country coach ended up leaving the school. So they asked me if I'd be willing to, to coach the high school. So at this point, I had one season of middle school track under my belt. And now I was the high school cross-country coach. And really enjoyed coaching at the high school level. In that adolescent time frame, it's the biggest adolescent. You see the biggest growth curve at that time because athletes are maturing. They're also new to the sport, so their their potential for improvement is really high. But with that, they're also not yet fully skeletally mature. So you have to be careful not to get them hurt in the process of putting them into a, a new sport. So it was an opportunity for me to both learn how to coach, also learn how to develop an athlete, keep them healthy, but also allow them to try to pursue running at the next the next level, which would be the collegiate level. And so when I took over the program, neither team had qualified for the state meet. By the time that I left, after, after four years, we had uh, a number of top 10 state finishes. And I believe I had around seven to nine athletes that ended up going on to compete in college, which was pretty, pretty exciting from a school of 600 students um, that was known, best known for its academics. It was the number one academic public school in the state. Um, so it was pretty exciting to, to kind of see that trajectory. Now, during my, my time at, at Peak to Peak High School, um, Aaliyah Gray, one of the athletes in our current group, her and I started dating. She had recently moved 
to the area to join one of the post-collegiate groups here in town. She she didn't necessarily jive super well with the training and kind of how the structure of the group was, was formatted. Um, so she decided to make a shift in coaching and had considered self-coaching for a, for a little bit. This was fall of 2014 after she ran the New York City Marathon. So we got put in touch with Coach Hill, who was willing to take her on as an athlete. Well, I, I was getting a little um, overwhelmed coaching at the high school plus managing my private practice. It was getting a little bit too busy, so I decided to step down at the high school to help Aaliyah implement her training. I would pace her through repeats, time repeats, and we would send reports back to Coach Hill of how she was handling everything. She started having a really, really big spring season comparative to what she had done in the past. Her PR at the time was 1602, and I think her first track race under Coach Hill was 1535 for the 5K. And later that fall, she ended up dropping around 30 seconds in her 10K. Her PR at the time was 3257, and she ended up dropping down to... Um, I believe it was 3227 in December of that year. Also during that time, she also finished 10th at uh, the U.S. Championships in the 10K and 12th in the 5K. So she had had a pretty, pretty big or relatively big uh, jump in performance relative to what she had experienced before under Coach Hill. And so we started getting a little bit of interest from a couple other post-collegiate athletes that that wanted to train with her, move to the area, have me structure training. And so we decided to say like, all right, well, I guess we'll start a group. And so we decided to call it the Roots Running Project. It was a pretty informal group to start with. Uh, Mara Olson, who is a five-time All-American at Butler, was our first athlete to contact us. And once we decided to to start it as, as a training group, um, Noah, who had found us on social media, I think it was our Twitter handle at the time, um, contacted us and was interested in in moving to Boulder and, and being a part of what we were trying to build. Starting the post-collegiate group when Aaliyah started working with Coach Hill wasn't necessarily a focal point for either one of us. I knew I wanted to continue coaching. I just didn't know in what capacity, whether at the high school level, youth off-season training groups, or or starting a post-collegiate group. But I really enjoyed my time at the high school coaching. And so when the opportunity came to start coaching a couple post-collegiate athletes, it was really appealing in the sense that I felt like I provided a unique context for them to be able to train in. I I had my private practice and I knew that I could uh, treat the athletes in an attempt to keep them healthy so that they could could continue to train hard. And we had Coach Hill in our corner as a mentor and someone that I could bounce ideas off of, especially initially when, when I was trying to learn his system. And one of the big things that I think it's hard for people sometimes to wrap wrap their heads around when it comes to Coach V Hill style of training is the volume of intensity days that do occur during during a short period of time, whether it be in a week, a ten day period, a two week period. Um, there isn't a large window for recovery, and so 
the opportunity for me to, to structure the strength training, to structure the treatments centered around what the athletes are doing and be able to observe everything that they're doing um, from a training standpoint, I think was a huge benefit as we were trying to help athletes continue to train hard on a consistent basis. So when Noah approached us, I have to be honest, I mean, his times on paper weren't weren't super impressive. They were decent for a division three, a successful division three runner, but not to the level that would warrant a quote unquote elite post-collegiate group to take on. And as Noah has mentioned in other interviews, he sent out inquiries to a a number of post-collegiate groups. We were the only one that responded and it's ironic that now he's he's run pretty fast. I think his half marathon mark from this past weekend ranks him 27th of all time in the U.S. and third this year. But we, along with a number of other post-collegiate groups, may have missed out on that that type of athlete had we just looked at those times on paper. And so I think that's something that I want to kind of highlight as we as we get into what intrigued us about Noah and then as Noah kind of discusses his his perspective of how he's been able to make that jump is that it we'd be we'd be lying if we projected that he would have been 6148 18 months after I started coaching him because at the time that we took him on when I first started talking to him he was a 68 minute half marathoner and then in the fall that that fall before he moved out to Boulder, he dropped his time to 66 minutes. So for someone to drop 66 minutes to, down to 61 minutes in 18 months is rare. And it just shows how underdeveloped he was, how genetically gifted he may have also been that just wasn't tapped into up until he got into a, a much more structured program. But that we can't necessarily predict how someone is going to perform on the on the professional level you could get a very talented division 1 athlete and whether it be injury history or motivation or poor social structure that doesn't allow them to fully reach their their optimal potential or whether it's a d2 d3 runner that's super underdeveloped that just never gets the opportunity it's really hard to kind of predict who is going to be successful and who's not going to be successful. So I think we, when we're looking in that context, we have to take a number of different factors into account. When it comes to Noah, he had contacted us, and I think one of the unique things, when, when we get athlete inquiries, some athletes fill out the inquiry on our, on our website, some athletes send us an email expressing their desire to be a part of the team. Noah expressed that same desire. He also sent a cover letter. He sent his job resume, which I don't know why that would have pertained to what he was trying to to accomplish by by moving out to the area and be a professional runner, but he sent his job resume. And one of the things that stuck out to me was that he said initially when he was contacting us that he understands that he he says i'm realistic in my abilities and i i know that i'm not warranted of a place on a professional team 
but he feels that he's underdeveloped and if given the opportunity, he would outperform the level of expectation of what, what we perceived. Now, my first conversation with Noah, I tried to scare the shit out of him. Like I let him know the training is hard. It is going to be much harder than what he has ever done. It will be structured appropriately and it's going to be rational in thought of how that training is structured but it is going to be much more challenging than than what he's experienced as a post-collegiate as a collegiate athlete he was someone that had never really had anyone to compete with on his own team yet when he was in competitions in college he performed really well. He would always race to the level of competition he was competing against. And he went to a small D3 school in Indiana called DePa. And he was fortunate that he was a very bright student going through high school. He came from a very blue collar, low income family that he was able based on academics to get a scholarship to a very high profile high school in the Indiana area which then allowed him to acquire a scholarship to an Indiana school. And I'll let him discuss that a little bit more when, when him and I do our Q&A. But had it not been for that scholarship, he probably ends up at Indiana University and was not good enough to run for Indiana University, so probably would not have competed collegiately. But because of that scholarship, it allowed him to go to a smaller D3 school in DePauw that allowed him to compete collegiately. Now at DePauw, like I said, he didn't really, he had, a, he had a great collegiate experience, but didn't necessarily have the outstanding team of individuals surrounding him that allowed him to be pushed on a consistent basis. And when I contacted his college coach, when he was first inquiring to join our group, his college coach emphasized that like Noah's a very underdeveloped athlete. He has never had the long distance training partner to push him like other programs may have had for him, but that he is a charismatic teammate that everybody just gravitates towards and everyone loves. And we see that. I mean, what you see in the interviews is the type of teammate that he is when he's out at practice. He really is part of the glue that makes our team more of a family for Aaliyah, who's someone that obviously is is personally very attached to myself, he's like a brother to Aaliyah. He's a very stoic figure when it comes to how he approaches his work. And he gets fired up when he hits workouts that he hasn't been able to to hit prior, but that he also he also knows that there's more work to be done. When you look at some of the workouts that he did coming into our group, there were some decent ones, but not anywhere close to what he needed to do to compete on the post-collegiate level. And his volume was relatively low throughout his college career. The most miles he ever hit was 80, and I believe he only hit it for a couple of weeks. There wasn't consistency of 80 miles. He was consistently more around the 70-mile-a-week range. And so we knew when he was coming out here, we couldn't jump his volume. 70 to 80 miles is not post-collegiate type volume, but had I jumped his volume, he also would have probably gotten hurt. And so I had to keep him in that 70, around 65 to 75 mile a week range. And I think he consistently 
when we look back, was at 70 miles a week with the exception of a couple down weeks and a couple race weeks for over a year. And it wasn't until after that year that I started increasing his volume past that 70 miles a week. So the consistency of being able to hit that volume, I think, was also important because when you look back over his two years since graduating from DePauw, his training was incredibly inconsistent. He was able to get on with a post-collegiate group in Indiana when he first graduated from DePauw, but he does not look back on that time with the most fond memories because of the way that the training was structured. He ended up hurting his hamstring, which limited his ability to train and compete. He got pretty discouraged when he did get that hamstring injury, so decided to go out to California and hike the John Muir Trail for a couple of months. And then it wasn't until after leaving the John Muir Trail that he decided to get back into running and slowly started building his volume back the back end of that summer up until January of 2015. So when he ran his first half marathon, he was pretty underdeveloped, but he ended up running 68 minutes off of very sporadic training, very low volume, got a little bit more consistent after that, and ended up running his 66 before moving to Boulder. And one of the things that I emphasized with him was you'll see a big performance shift once being in the system consistently. If you structure your social setting appropriately, he also knows the importance of getting rest and being able to compartmentalize when he goes out versus when he gets in his training. And he's still not staying out most nights until 2 in the morning. Most nights he's going to bed around 10, 11 and make sure that training is still the priority. But he also wasn't intimidated by a lot of the workouts that we were throwing at him. And one of the questions that a lot of people were asking us on social media is, when did that mind shift kind of take place? And why did he start to believe that he could compete with some of the guys that he is? I don't know if it was like a drastic shift in mindset as much as it was a confidence that built from doing consistent work over time and hitting workouts faster than what he had done. And I think when we saw... With it, after he had moved out to Boulder, we had eight weeks to build to his first half marathon under our, under our training system at Rock and Roll Arizona, and he dropped another two minutes running 64 and qualifying for the Olympic trials. I think that brief, that brief glimpse into what was possible, dropping two minutes after training consistently for eight, eight weeks, I think was a big like eye-opener that if I continue doing what I'm doing and being consistent and staying healthy, I can continue to improve. And whether that window of improvement would have led to a 61 minutes, was it's hard to speculate at that time. We knew he would consistently improve. And one thing I kept harping was it takes a year in the system to really, to really see what you can do, which I think we're seeing right now with what he's at at the New York City half. But the consistency and the the trust that the training is going to get you to a level that you have yet to touch i think was a big a big shift not necessarily believing you can compete against those guys but just trusting that what you're doing is going to translate into certain levels of fitness when you go out and compete and like i said before we train really hard there's a lot of data points that we get in terms of what someone's fitness is 
where someone's at relative to the event that they're going to be training for so we can come up with an accurate pace measure of what they should try to hit when they're in that type of competition. Noah, when it comes to a competition, is a gamer. He's willing to to go out at the pace that we project, but when push comes to shove, he's also ready to race. And I think that's that's rare as well, is to trust that the level of fitness that we're we're telling him he's at is one that he has yet to hit, but that one that we're confident he's ready to to run, but that he's also he's also capable of competing when when it's time to compete. And I think that's an important thing to kind of highlight is that we use paces as gauges. We use it as gauges of fitness so that you can use it more as a leash in the early stages of whatever event you're training for to make sure that you're not outside of what your realm of capacity is. But at a certain point within any event, you have to be willing to compete and race. And that's something that we saw at the 10K when he ran his 28-22 at Portland Track Fest. That's something that we saw at the 10-mile champs when he finished second. And something we saw this past weekend at New York City Half where he he had a big improvement. I think the funny thing when we look at the New York City half performance is it was another big drop in time from his best time previously being 63.22 from Houston in January to then dropping another 90 seconds to running 61.48 in New York. But our prediction on what he was capable of running before the race was 61.45. And Noah and I had sat down the week prior to discuss what pace he should go out in. And I turned to him and said, do you know what pace, do you know what pace that I'm thinking you can run? And he turned and looked at me and said 4.45. And I was like, close, like 4.42, Like with 61.45 being that goal. When we look back at Houston, he was in 62:30 shape. It's just the conditions on the day weren't fit for that type of performance. It was hot, it was humid, it was a little bit windy. And so he raced the competition of who we thought he should be around. And had the conditions been what they consistently are at Houston, he probably would have run low 62 based off of what he ended up doing on that day. When we look back at Big Sur, where he ran a 64:22. He finished fifth in that race and was about wasn't too far off of what the leader ended up finishing at. But I think he was still riding the high emotionally from the ten mile champs. The last six miles of that race were into a headwind. The course was a little bit hillier than we anticipated. And so even though he was in sixty three shape at that time, I think his sixty four twenty two was probably an appropriate time for that day. And we knew that going in, we knew Houston would be humid. And so it was like, okay, instead of trying to hit a specific pace, put yourself with the guys that you know you should compete against. Same thing with that Big Sur. When we knew it would be a little bit of a headwind, go with the guys that you know you should be around. Whereas at New York, when we knew that there would be a little bit of a tailwind, it's like, you need to compete through Central Park. But then once you hit 7th Avenue, let it rip and open it up. And so he started out that first 5K. He wanted to go with the lead group. Diego Estrada kind of turned to him and told him, dude, just chill a little bit, run with me. And then at 5K, in in Diego's words, Diego turned to Noah and said, go get that contract. Like Diego could tell Noah was chomping at the bit. The pace was realistic based on what we had projected. And Noah ended up running a good portion of the 
the race after 5K solo. But Noah is a very methodic runner. He's very, very good at maintaining maintaining splits. We see it with his tempos. We see it with long runs. We see it with intervals. He's pretty consistent. Where he struggles is his speed in that it takes him a little bit to warm up, which is probably why he'll end up being a pretty good, pretty good marathoner. But I think when we're looking at those performances of how his progression has been, his progression would have been relatively linear. There was a big jump initially based on what he had previously done. And that's just training hard and being in a new system, which I think with anyone that's a little underdeveloped, you can improve pretty drastically once you get consistent and you start training a little bit differently. Which is why I've always said it takes about a year to get adapted to a new system, but also to see if that system's working for you. With someone like Noah, you could almost equate him to a college freshman in terms of where his underdeveloped ability lied. He wasn't the most accoladed athlete coming out of high school. I think his high school two-mile PR was 950. I think his high school mile PR was in the 430s. But when you watch him run, he's very efficient. His, his frame is naturally suited for those longer distances, even though he's a taller athlete. And his willingness to just trust the work and do the work is, I think, something that's also unique at the post-collegiate level, especially when you're entering a certain level of uncertainty of your training harder than you ever have. There is going to be some questions of, am I training too hard? One of Noah's worst workouts was four days before his 10K PR. He was scheduled to do 800s, and I think I wanted him to run around 220 for his 800s, and he couldn't break 230. And by the end, I think he was running 235s going in, finishing that workout. We ended up cutting two of those splits off the workout. And this was a Tuesday before Saturday race, and he turns to me and is like, how the hell am I supposed to run that pace for a 10K when I can't do it for 1-800? And my response to him was, well, it's a good thing it's Tuesday and not Saturday. And so that's one thing that I think is important to highlight as well is that there's not one key indicator workout that we point to and say like, this is the fitness that you're in. It's the cumulative body of work of all the stuff you've done up to that point within that training block. And I've been asked before, do we use a linear periodization? Do we use an undulatory periodization? I don't, we don't use a periodization. And that's the one thing that uh, a lot of collegiate athletes coming out of college you need to stop compartmentalizing your seasons into fall and spring because post-collegiate running is year-round. There's always a race. If you're not ready for one race, there's another race on the horizon that you could potentially get ready for. And one thing I highlight with all the recruits that we talk to or all the potential athletes interested in our group is that at any point within a training block, if we feel that you're ready to race and you go out and compete regardless of the event that you compete at from a distance runner standpoint, we anticipate that you'll perform up to the level of fitness that we project and you'll perform decently because within our training environment, you're working every biomotor system consistently throughout a training block that there's not base phase of easy endurance mileage. There's not now we're getting into the pre-competitive phase. Like you see a lot of training systems kind of isolated in and then the competitive phase and then the championship phase. 
We do do mini peaks as we get up towards highlighted events, but and we do have in built-in rest periods. But we, I mean, you asked Noah what his built-in rest period is. He had a he had this past Tuesday off, but it was his first day off of running in probably nine months. Coach Vigil was asked one time in terms of how much recovery he gives athletes in between training blocks, and his response was. Well, how many days do you go without eating? Because your body is being fed so frequently in terms of what type of stimulus you're receiving that you're neurologically wired to needing that. So there is periods where the intensity is higher, the volume may be higher, but we're never neglecting a biomotor pattern. We're also never compartmentalizing into easy volume and then trying to peak up towards a, a key competition. But we do, we do kind of view training blocks as a stepwise approach to the next to the next phase. And whether you want to call that a periodization, I don't necessarily view it as that because within each each microcycle, macrocycle, we're progressing stimuluses based on how the athlete is handling them. And so, if they're not capable of increasing their volume quite yet, I'm not going to increase their volume. And if they're not capable of increasing the speed of their tempos, I won't increase the speed of their tempos. We want to see the, the body adapt before we progress any one stimulus or before we progress the volume. And so with Noah, we were seeing him increase his ability to handle 70 miles a week at the intensity that we were asking him to. So this past fall, we increased it to 80 miles a week, but he only hit 80 miles a week, maybe four or five weeks. Then this winter, he hit it another four or five weeks. This spring, he'll hit it about six to eight. With everything trying to build up to win, we feel is appropriate for him to, to take a legit hand at that marathon distance. I think the key is recognizing when it's appropriate to progress, recognizing what the next step is in that progression, never losing sight of what those long-term goals are, and having a complete program. And what I mean by that is I write the training, I do the healthcare, I write the strength and conditioning progressions, I sit down with the athletes to talk about their goals and whether they're appropriate goals or not, and recognizing the psychological profile of each athlete so that you can tap into what is going to be an appropriate way to motivate that athlete. With Noah, like I said, he's a very stoic figure. He can sometimes be a mule when it comes to training where it's tough to get him going for certain workouts that he's just not super motivated to hit, but he still does them. He may not be the m most happy when he's doing them, but he understands the importance of them. And like I said, the, the compartmentalization of recognizing the importance of sleep, getting in the pool for recovery, getting the soft tissue work done, doing the strength work, all of that stuff factors into seeing the ability for the body to stay healthy, but also to see the improvement in performance. One of the questions that was asked on our social media feeds is, how do I feel like my work as a chiropractor has allowed me to help Noah and the other athletes improve their performance? And one thing that I want to stress is, I'm pretty critical of the chiropractic profession. I didn't go into it because I fully buy into what chiropractic and the stigma around chiropractic entails. I went into it because of what it allowed me from a scope of practice standpoint and how I viewed it as an ancillary part of an athlete's training program. 
I think what it did help me with is the chiropractic profession. When you're going through chiropractic school, you learn biomechanics, you learn physiology, you learn injury diagnosis, you learn strength and conditioning and rehab, the way that the body adapts to different stimulus, similarly to how you would if you were in a human physiology major, a kinesiology major, a med school student. So it's not just about what people usually associate chiropractic with as a chiropractic manipulations. It's a, it's, a, it's a very complete grad school program in a three and a half year term. But after college, I also got what's called a diplomate of sports medicine, which is a very small subspecialty within the chiropractic profession. I think there's around four or 500 of those worldwide. And what that allowed me was to have a much more stringent focus on sports injury management it had a much more specific focus on strength and conditioning and sports injury diagnostics, as well as imaging diagnostics when viewing MRIs or reading blood labs. And so when we're dealing with post-collegiate elite athletes, I think it also allowed me the ability to understand the way that they're moving recognize any abnormalities as it comes to structuring strength work or or managing injuries. But it gave me the capacity to treat those athletes to make sure that injury risk was relatively low. And strength and conditioning is also one of my specialties. And I think that allowed me to understand when when we're structuring strength work around what their workouts are, that everything had that running focus in mind, especially since I was the one managing those running progressions. Whereas I think a lot of programs, when there's an isolated strength and conditioning coach outside of what the running coach is, there's not always the communication involved between both coaches to understand that the demands that the strength coach is placing on the athlete may conflict with the demands that the running coach is placing on those athletes. And so the ability for that to keep an athlete healthy can sometimes conflict. Now, there are some great strength and conditioning coaches out there that understand distance running mechanics fairly well and running coaches that have no problem communicating what their workouts are to the strength coaches and trust that the strength coach is going to take that information and apply it accurately. But I think having all of those specialties, the healthcare side, the strength and conditioning inside, the experience as a collegiate runner, and then having the ability to coach at a high school prior to taking on post-collegiate athletes, the long-term development of each athlete was really emphasized. And still something with NOAA that we haven't de-emphasized. The natural inclination for us to try to rush him into certain events is obviously going to be there. We recognize that he's his best event is probably going to be the marathon. And one of the questions that was asked on the social media feeds is why so many half marathons? Well, his volume is pretty low and he's eventually going to be a marathoner. So get him used to those longer distance events before we decide to start bumping his volume and start focusing on what it's going to take for him to run a pretty good marathon debut. We initially viewed track with Noah as If you're going to improve and be a successful post-collegiate athlete, you need to get the speed. You need to improve your speed, the 5K and 10K speed, because that's eventually going to help you be a good marathoner. And the half marathon distance is something that allows us 
to progress him up to that marathon distance while his volume is also being progressed, I think a little bit safer. And even after the half marathons, like Noah's, Noah's recovery takes less than a week before he starts getting back into training. He may be sore and stiff a little bit, but we feel that because they're getting so many workouts within a short period of time within the training system, that that also aids the ability for that body to recover relatively quickly after performances. I mean, when Aaliyah ran the Olympic trials and finished 10th at the marathon, she was running that next week. She wasn't running very fast or very far, but she was running the day following that marathon. And it goes back to our philosophy that if the training is structured appropriately, the recovery can be relatively quick. You still have to compartmentalize it into what it's going to take for that athlete to recover from whatever respective event they were training for. But we also need to make sure that we're not deconditioning the athlete either. If anything, it's more mental recovery that needs to be done than physical. And again, we have a complete program. We're doing a lot of strength work on a weekly basis. They have an aspect of strength that they're performing on a daily basis. And we try to be super consistent with super certain recovery strategies. Like, like I said before, pool walking, optimizing their sleep, making sure their caloric intake stays really high, which is something that I emphasize consistently over and over and over again with our athletes. Because low caloric intake relative to what your energy output is, is a huge injury predictor, not just for bone, but for also soft tissue. And so we have the belief that if your caloric intake is relatively high, your energy output is appropriate based on what your body can tolerate, your body composition will normalize to where it should. The strength training is a huge aspect in that in improving tissue resiliency to make sure that they can handle the demands of that sport. And then the soft tissue care. Soft tissue care, in my opinion, isn't something that's going to heal tissue. It gives it the capacity to heal, meaning it's improving blood flow supply. It's improving acute range of motion after you do it. But the strength work is what actually helps repattern the tissue in terms of protein synthesis, motor control, and the soft tissue work is just a means to make sure that the the body stays balanced side to side. Same thing with adjustments. Adjustments, I don't have the belief that I'm moving anything as much as I'm releasing pressure in an area that has an increase in pressure. And so if we release that pressure and it gives the, the joint the ability to move a little bit more freely, then as they do their strength work, the motor control can be repatterned appropriately. So I think one of the things that Noah saw initially was an increase in his training stimulus, but also he had never done strength work. He had wasn't very consistent with gain soft tissue care. And even though he's a social figure, he never really highlighted the importance of nutrition and and sleep as it related to what his performance might be. And Noah, Noah was vegan for a very, very long time. It wasn't until he got off the John Muir trail that he craved meat. He was vegan, I think it was for 18 or 19 years. But then being on, on the trail for two months and feeling pretty calorically depleted once he, once he got off the trail, he said the first thing he craved was a burger. And I think he, when you look at him, he's very thin frame, but he eats a ton. And I think the training is what 
changes that body composition, but it's not something he intrinsically tries to put on himself. That's just genetics. And I would rather all of our athletes to be relatively athletic because I feel like that allows them to handle the intensity of what our training system is more so than being being relatively small in stature. So before I get to a couple of the questions that were asked on social media, I think the biggest take-home thing with someone like Noah was he was underdeveloped. He competed well in the competitions that he had been in. His school would only compete in meets that were within driving distance of his school until they got to the national competitions. So he competed well. He had a desire to improve because he was also very passionate about the sport. And I've heard the criticism of you can't be too passionate because then your training becomes erratic. I think that's that's a misconception. I think you need to have a passion and a desire to improve within a sport, but you need to know how to control that emotion as it relates to performing the sport. You need to be stoic in your perspective because you need to look at the way that you are handling your training to have the confidence that you can go out and compete with who you're competing against. And at the end of the day, running is so individualized that you're still competing against yourself at the end of the day. We tell our athletes when you're going into a competition that this is the fitness that we think you're capable of. And if the race doesn't afford you the ability to go and do that based on the competition, go and make it happen. Weather conditions are sometimes outside of your control. And so it's learning how to kind of manage the stress when the day just isn't there. And Noah, after Big Sur, after Houston, one of the things that he's emphasized was, I think it was the appropriate level of performance for the day. Not, I'm bummed with the time. We, like he said, we know the time is there. We know I'm capable of it. But the effort was appropriate for what the conditions were. And I think that's a big, that's a big take-home point as well, is never... Never, never focusing on what those external factors are more than how it, how it changes what your strategy is going to be when, when going out and performing. You still have to go out and compete just like everybody else. And if you focus too much on things outside of your control, it takes away from all the work that you did to put you on that starting line in the first place. And I think Noah's confidence to perform against the level of competition that he has wasn't a light bulb mo- moment as much as it was working into that type of moment. Rock and Roll Arizona was the first competition he had against good competition. When he was at the Portland Track Festival and ran his 10K PR, there were some good guys in the field, but it took working back and forth with Scott Smith from NAZ Elite in order to hit the time that he did. When we saw him blow up at the Olympic trials in the 10K, some of that I think was just the moment was a little bit too big for him. But it took being in that moment against those guys and having that blow up that I think instigated his trajectory for the U.S. 10-mile champs where he found himself trying to surge away from the field three miles from the finish line against really good guys. And that was a start stepping stone to be able to compete against the guys at Big Sur, to compete against the guys at, at Houston, to compete against the guys at New York Half. And that's something that now as we look towards some of the track races coming up, he's going to have to come with that same fire. Now he's not surprising anyone. He has a little bit more notoriety, a little bit more of a target on his back, and he has to raise his level of expectations accordingly based on how his workouts are also going into those competitions. And we're in a sport where you're only as good as your last performance 
as it relates to something like and sponsorship sponsorship for someone like Noah, when he first moved out here, wasn't even on the radar and he had to grow into that type of, that type of expectation, but also not losing sight of why he decided to move to Boulder in the first place, which was to see how far he could take himself in terms of performance ability. And you find new levels of hurt along the way in workouts that you hadn't been able to hit in the past. And you find new levels of confidence in being able to tap into those new levels of hurt. And I think Noah Noah outperformed his expectations very quickly. Like he said in an interview, he had bought Olympic trials tickets to be able to go watch the track trials, let alone be there on the starting line to compete because he never thought that would be possible. But it started becoming a possibility as we were seeing those those improvements in performance throughout the spring and you start resetting what those goals potentially should be. So it was never 18 months ago we thought Noah's going to run 61.48. It was Noah's going to run 61.48 after his Houston performance, after we saw his workouts in January, February. And going into Houston, it was Noah's going to run 62.30. So it's a logical progression based on what his his previous performances and previous levels of training had been. Now I'll go over a couple of questions for the Q&A that kind of pertain to me before I step off here and then I'll bring in Noah to do the Q&A. And one of the questions was any advice for serious post-collegiate runners that don't have a chance of going pro? I think if you're serious about it, finding a good coach, finding a a training environment that allows you the ability to continue pursuing what it is you want to pursue. Don't underestimate the ability of having a good coach and one that you relate with personally, but also can buy into the training system that they're, they're, they're putting in your direction. If you feel like you work really well with, as a solo athlete, again, don't underestimate the importance of a coach because they're there to help hold the reins a little bit and keep you healthy. Don't underestimate the value of strength training. Don't underestimate the value of consistent treatment every once in a while. And the biggest thing for post-collegiate athletes is you'll see your performances improve if you can stay healthy and train consistently. And that, if there's any secret of training, it's the secret of staying healthy. And my number one for staying healthy is high caloric intake. My number two is high sleep. Get rest, get calories. Everything else, if structured appropriately, will take care of itself if you can train consistently and continue to find motivation to do it. So find a good coach, keep yourself accountable in terms of what it's going to take to keep you healthy. And if it if you're someone that doesn't work well as an individual, find a group that that you can train with. And there's a ton of post-collegiate groups, a ton of recreational groups. It doesn't have to be a pro group that you need to train with. There's a lot of groups that afford you the ability to continue to perform. And don't be afraid of competition. When Noah first came to us, he was more racing on the local road racing scene. Don't be afraid to go to higher levels of competition to test yourself. Because it does take challenging yourself differently to really realize, are you capable of making bigger gains in your performance than what you have up to that point? Another question is any light bulb ideas during training? We don't have light bulb ideas. We have different stimuluses we're trying to incorporate and we try to progress those appropriately. 
I don't like creative workouts. I like to keep them simple. So the idea of doing something like three by a mile, four by 200, three by 300, followed by hill sprints, I don't keep it simple because I think the, the more you add complicated workouts, the more stress you're adding on the athlete to be able to remember what they're doing. And the more stress you're adding, the harder sometimes it is to get the work done. I know that dealing with stress is something that's, that's important in competition, but minimizing it to optimize recovery is also important in order to consistently train and stay healthy. So we challenge our athletes in terms of the intensity of the work that they're performing, but I don't try to get super creative in the types of workouts that I'm asking them to do because I want them to be able to go out, clip off the workout, check a box, and get healthy or get recovered before the next training session. Someone else asked, how do I stand the length of Noah's hair and do I ever consider having him cut it? Uh, no, I, I think Noah, maybe it's like his Samson strength. I think Noah Noah's hair is kind of his identity after he got as much media coverage as he did after the Olympic trials. I joked with him, you know, you can never cut your mustache now because I think part of that is the letting the hair down on the last repeat of a workout, the trimming the the beard into a mustache for a race is somewhat what gets him amped up to compete. And so whatever he feels comfortable with, whatever the other athletes feel comfortable with in terms of what gets them mentally engaged to go out and compete, I'm all for Someone asked, where did he get the confidence to run X pace for X distance against X competition? And I think that comes again from the consistency of doing a lot of hard work in a short amount of time and knowing that his body is capable to run the pace that I tell him he's capable of running. And he's becoming more and more self-aware of where that fitness is kind of deviating towards and can see trends in what he's capable of hitting in workouts. And so he's getting a good gauge of what he feels like he's capable of hitting. And I think him and I have been relatively on the same page with what competitions he wants to do, where his fitness is. I think competitions, I have, I have a strong hand in which ones he does, but they're also ones that he potentially is excited about as well. And then the final question is biggest contributing factor for Noah's improvement I think we got lucky with how underdeveloped he is based on how talented he is. I think us being able to keep him healthy has allowed his body to reach new levels of fitness that he previously had not tapped into. His ability to hit consistently those workouts has given him the confidence that he can go out and compete to the level that we expect him to be able to. And I think it's ironic that our three, arguably our three best athletes on the team competing right now are... Noah, Aaliyah, and a new girl, Katie McMiniman, who are all D2, D3, D3 athletes. Because I just think that it shows that they had a ton of untapped potential. So when we go back to that question of advice for post-collegiates, if you're a D2, D3 runner out there that feel like you've been underdeveloped, you probably have been. And your window for improvement, if given the opportunity, is probably very big. But it takes the right mindset the right system, the right structure in order to optimize that. And that goes for anybody, but definitely the ones that weren't from high volume programs at earlier ages. And like I said, the ability to stay healthy with general athleticism, which is something that we've seen improvement in Noah is his, his better motor control, better general strength, better explosiveness when it comes to speed. All of that factors into having a higher growth curve.
So I know a lot of stuff I've kind of reiterated or regurgitated as we've kind of gone through this, but although it looks like Noah's improvement from the outside has been pretty drastic, like I said, initially it was, everything else has been relatively gradual in that progression relative to the training that he's been able to perform. And I think we'll continue to see that improvement in performance, but the large jumps in times and the large drops in where he places at some of these competitions becomes smaller and smaller as that growth curve gets smaller and smaller. So then it becomes even more important that he stay healthy and consistent and engaged in the sport to be able to see those consistent improvements. Noah and I have a, a really good relationship. Very, We're on the same page. Even if it's something I don't want to hear, he doesn't hesitate to come and talk to me about it. And I think as you're trying to find a coach to work with, that's something that's incredibly important. To find a coach that emotionally is invested to see you improve as much as that athlete is bought into what that coach is providing. And I think I want to see Noah do well just as Noah's uh, just as much as Noah wants to do well to show that what the work I'm putting in as a coach is not for naught. So find a good coach find a good team, and care about that coach as much as you care about your own performance. All right, so I'll step away here as a solo solo talker, and I'll bring in Noah to go over what his perception of the New York City half was. 